Greetings, AJT readers. This is Carol Kayo from Washington University in St. Louis, and welcome to a special podcast episode brought to you by the AJT Editorial Fellowship Program. I'm joined today by my excellent mentor, Dr. Michael Green, and we have an incredible group of speakers uh, gathered here today to discuss uh, an incredibly timely topic, the use of COVID-19 positive donors in solid organ transplants. Great. Well, thank you, Carol. It's indeed a pleasure to introduce my good friend and long-term colleague, Dr. Emily Blumberg, who will moderate today's podcast. Dr. Blumberg has been a leader in the field of solid organ transplantation in general and transplant infectious diseases in particular. She is professor of medicine at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Emily is a past chair of the OPTN UNOS Disease Transmission Advisory Committee, former chair of the AST Infectious Diseases Community of Practice, and a past president of the AST. She currently serves as a deputy editor for the American Journal of Transplantation. During the past two years, she has been an important leader in our field's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Accordingly, she is the perfect moderator for today's discussion with our two speakers. Dr. Paolo Grossi is Professor of Infectious Diseases at the School of Medicine, University of Insubria, Arese, Italy. Since 2001, he has been the director of the Infectious and Tropical Diseases Unit of the ASST Sete Laghi of Varese, Italy. Starting in 1999, he has been advisor for all infectious disease-related problems at the Italian National Center for Transplantation and covers the role of second opinion for all organ donors with potentially transmissible infectious diseases. He is the chair of the ESC MID study group on infections and immunocompromised hosts and the past chair of the ID Council of ISHLT. And he was responsible for the chapter on risk of transmission of infectious diseases of the guide on quality and safety of organs for the Transplantation Council of Europe for the fifth through eighth edition. Our second speaker is Dr. Ricardo Lahoys, who is an associate professor of internal medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Geographic Medicine at UT Southwestern Medical Center. He has a particular interest in maximizing deceased donor utilization and donor-derived infections in our SOT recipients. He is a past member of the Executive Committee of the Infectious Diseases Committee of Practice of the American Society of Transplantation, and he is a member of the Organ Procurement Transplant Network, United Network of Organ Sharing Ad Hoc Disease Advisory Committee, which he served on since 2016 and is the current chair. He is also an, a, an associate editor of the American Journal of Transplantation. Emily? Great. Thank you so much, Mike. And I can't imagine a better panel here today to discuss the issue of use of COVID-19 positive donors. I'd like to start by asking Dr. Grossi to tell us a little bit about the Italian experience and specifically the experience in his center, which was just published in the American Journal of Transplantation. It's important to note that Italy has led the uh, the charge in so many things in COVID, and we continue to learn from the your experience. So, Paolo, please share with us what it was that you discovered in using these donors. So, I don't know if I can share uh, my screen or not, because the party is not, but so I, I will go just by speaking. So, we started in November 2020, 
of using these uh, organs from donors with active SARS-CoV-2 infection. The very first one was uh, a 17 year old boy who committed suicide thrown out of his uh, window and uh, and uh, he was incidentally found to be SARS-CoV-2 positive at the time of uh, uh, donor evaluation so since the very beginning since February 2020 we uh, we put as a mandatory screening the BAL of all uh, potential organ donors. And this guy was uh, found to be positive at the, at the BAL and the nasopharyngeal swab. And there was a, a very uh, young uh, baby uh, who has a biliary atresia, a congenital, and she was uh, dying. And, uh, and she had COVID before. So, and uh, I, when they called me uh, asking me what to do with this potential donor, I thought it's a shame to throw away organs from a healthy 17 years old uh, boy. And, and this very dying because of her uh, end-stage liver disease and she had COVID before. So I assumed that uh, she had uh, uh, some protection because of the previous infection. So I said, why not to use a, a split river for of, of this uh, young boy, for this uh, dying, very uh, young uh, uh, baby uh, uh, who was dying of, of, of her end-stage liver disease. And so we, we, we did it. So this was the, the very first one. And then uh, we had many others that coming afterwards, and what we, we choose to do was to use the organs from donors who were dying of different causes, not donors dying of COVID, but because of brain hemorrhage or brain trauma or meningitis, any other cause of death that brought this, uh, this potential donor to become uh, uh, potential donors, uh, but not related to COVID, but they were incidentally found to be positive because of the uh, the spread of, of, of the virus uh, in, in, in Italy. Unfortunately, in my region particularly, we were the very first one to face this, uh, this pandemic. And so we started using and uh, uh, the uh, the results so far, so we did more than 50 transplants with, with these donors and none of them transmitted any infection. And all the, the biopsy that we performed on the graft before transplantation uh, were negative by PCR looking for the RNA of SARS-CoV-2. So uh, I, I, and now we are uh, in January because of this result, uh, we have expanded the, because we, we were using only uh, life saving organs like liver and hearts for patients in severe clinical condition uh, that were really urgent uh, uh, candidates. Now we have extended to kidney recipients uh, uh, without uh, uh, that urgency, but with some specific uh, situation that make them uh, uh, with a low probability to get a transplant uh, shortly, but with uh, an history and, and the, the, the 
candidates who may accept these organs are all uh, uh, recipients with previous uh, COVID-19 and so we assume they are protected and then others who are vaccinated with at least three doses and documented zero conversion uh, regardless of the title because we don't have any correlates of what is a protective title but just showing that they have responded to, to vaccination during their waiting list uh, uh, period and uh, and also uh, all recipients uh, and we did few of them with uh, uh, our call for the transplant uh, and, uh, and they are found to be positive by uh, the nasopharyngeal swab at the time of, or, of hospital admission and so we we use the this so we offer these organs to these uh, uh, infected but asymptomatic uh, candidates for for transplantation and in these cases uh, we gave to this patient uh, uh, monoclonal antibodies uh, uh, as uh, like prophylaxis of uh, potential progression of, of the disease and we did also two hearts in one in a kid and one in an adult in recipients who were very were dying were very urgent heart recipients heart candidates and they were uh, not vaccinated and without any previous in infection so and we gave them monoclonal antibodies peritransplant and they did very well without any transmission and any consequence of the uh, of, of, of the use related to the use of, of the donor. So our experience, so it's still limited, of course, but uh, uh, it's growing because every day I get a call of a donor, a potential donor who is found incidentally to be positive at the BAL that is performed for donor evaluation. And we are using all these uh, 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 organs uh, coming from these donors. Of course, non-lung organs. We are not using lungs from uh, uh, from these donors. And, and the experience so far is, is really very, very good. So no one get uh, transmission. So we are monitoring weekly for the first months uh, with the nasopharyngeal swab in all the recipients. Uh, and none of them was found to be uh, positive. And the other point, and I will, will stop here, is to inform the recipients, the candidates. So we submit an informed consent, we explain what are the risks related to the use of the acceptance of, of these organs. But so far, none of the candidates uh, refuse the organs because of uh, the presence of uh, a positive BAL in, in the potential donor. Great. Thank you so much. It sounds like you're really making the optimal use of, of these organs. Ricardo, I wonder if you could share with us what the U.S. experience has been like, both what you've seen in terms of your position in DTAC and also any personal experience you might have. I think I probably view the pandemic in different phases. Probably the, the first phase is what we learned from the biology 
of uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection and COVID-19. I think like the sine qua non for transmission to a lung recipient is viable viral particles in the respiratory tract. And by now we know that there's a disconnect between PCR and uh, culture positivity. And, uh, and it appears that there's no viable virus beyond 20 days in general. The sine qua non for, for the transmission in a non-lung recipient will be viable virus either in blood or in the allograph. And even though that 10% of patients with COVID may have a positive RNA in the blood, there has been no uh, uh, descriptions of viable virus in the blood. I think there's a lot of conflicting data, but predominantly negative data suggesting that virus in allograph, meaning kidneys, heart, liver, is, is quite rare. And if it happens, it happens on people dying from severe COVID. So now the next part of the pandemic that I view is when we had the capability to test donors. And based on the biology of the disease, I think people started using those with a history of COVID-19 that were more than 21 days after. Then the next frontier was using um, donors with a history of mild COVID more than 10 days with an upper respiratory tract that, that was positive. I think this was, all this experience was nicely summarized by Vivek in current uh, transplantation reports. Then I think in this part, I think we also move to the asymptomatic donors with a positive NAT in the upper respiratory tract. And I think this is where I find the publication by Christine Koval describing five donors without the history of COVID-19 uh, that tested positive in upper respiratory tract for 10 kidney recipients with adequate short-term outcomes. The next phase of the pandemic to me is the lower respiratory tract positive, uh, not positive donor. And this happens as a result of the uh, investigations that the uh, CDC and DTAC performed that we received between December 2020 and February 2021, where there were three donors that tested positive in an upper sample, but were not tested in a lower, and they transmitted to the three lung recipients but they did not transmit to the six non-lung recipients. As a result, an emergency policy was passed and then we were testing all lung donors for SARS-CoV-2 in a lower respiratory tract. I think this created a new population of donors. What do we do with them? And I think based on some of the data that uh, Paolo de, uh, described from the Italian Transplant Authority, that it gave us the, uh, and in combination with the DTAC uh, investigations, the the basis to use them and at least we at uh, UT Southwestern we pr uh, published our first two liver transplants but since then um, I would say that UNOS has monitored the implications of this policy and at least as of November there were 175 non lung transplants performed in the U.S. from lower respiratory tract, not positive donors. And during that window, we have not uh, received any reports of uh, disease being transmitted to donors. Moving to our personal experience, I would say that we've used um, about, as of December, I think we had done 35 transplants from donors testing positive alone at our center, and we've used all the gamut uh, that I've described. Great, thank you. So I think as we're all thinking about using these donors more, 
the question becomes, what are the criteria that you have to use to say they're acceptable? So I'm going to throw out a couple of questions and would be interested in your input. Or if they die of COVID, would you take that donor? Paolo? We are not using donors who died because of COVID. So we just are using organs from donors who are incidentally found to be positive. So maybe in the next future, we might extend. But so far, we started using organs from donors who don't who die of different causes, not because of COVID, because also of potential uh, organ damage because of, of COVID, because of thrombosis or what else that might be related to to the COVID disease. So we we, we are not we never use and we are not using so far this kind of dog. Just those who are incidentally found to be positive, but who die of other other causes. Ricardo, are you aware of people using donors who died of COVID? And if so, do you know anything about those outcomes? So I think there is a publication from the University of uh, Utah. Uh, Miklos Molnar has published some of his uh, experience. Um, and I would say we have used those donors. And I think your question in a way gravitates towards what are the factors that we should take into account to accept these organs. And I think we are in a specialty where are the Transplant list is probably one of the most dangerous places, in my opinion. Patients have end organ disease, multiple comorbidities, they're in the ICU. And I think the most important factor to take into account is, is their mortality. So we haven't used that many of these organs, but we have. And I think the, the most important factors is, again, mortality on the wait list. What is the allograph quality and i think it, it is it goes into what's the allograph quality even without COVID. what is the allo the potential for COVID 19 associated organ dysfunction and you can factor there the age of the donor the comorbidities of the donor things that may happen like hypercoagulability and i think we also need to factor the peculiarities of of the donor or recipient i'll give you an example and and again it's just trying to make an example and, and not a rule from from the exception but there was a donor that was positive for COVID in an upper respiratory tract, and we got that offer for a heart recipient. And because the donor was positive, the lungs were not going to be utilized. And the recipient was a patient with a congenital cardiomyopathy. So we had the opportunity to recover a fair amount of the pulmonary vasculature that we otherwise would have been unable to do if the lungs were actually being used. And we required all that vasculature to reconstruct things at the time of transplant. So I think it was a perfect match. You can make also arguments by size, PRAs, and so many other things. So I, I do think that there is a role for using those donors, depending on the particular scenario. Like I said, that's not been the predominant population that we have used. And when we have, it's been donors that the onset of symptoms happened so many days ago, which I don't think at least there, there was a, a heightened risk of disease transmission. I think it was a predominantly a question of 
mortality on the waitlist of the candidate and allograft quality. I just want to ask one other question related to this. A lot of people are trying to factor in cycle thresholds. So I wonder, do you think we should be doing that? Or is that so unreliable as to be avoided? Well, if I can answer first. So um, most of the laboratory in Italy are not reporting the CT value. So this is not always available. And in some occasion, I, I asked, uh, particularly for using, before we started using uh, SARS-CoV-2 positive donor. So if I have like a, a CT of 38 out of 40, uh, I, I have used these uh, organs uh, uh, regardless of any restriction, like for me, they were like standard donors. So when the CT uh, is so high, it's it's very unlikely there is any viable virus in in the graft. So, but not for I'm not taking into account the CT uh, value to assign the organs uh, from SARS-CoV to positive donor in the lower respiratory tract. Uh, I would, are you using it? So I would say that there is a variation from OPO to OPO on whether they have a test that actually is able to give us the CT value, but there's variation from uh, test to test, sample to sample. There, I think there is a, a interest in having a single sort of way of saying, oh, I think this is safe, this is not safe. But in reality, this is a complex, multivariate clinical analysis to, to make the decision. And, and to be honest, when there's so much variation in the CT values, and we don't even have them in the vast majority of donors that we have used, I have started putting very low weight on it. And I have used other factors like, again, mortality on the wait list and allograft quality as way more important factors than, than a relatively imprecise uh, test result. Great. Thank you. Just a quick aside, Mike, do you think these donors are getting traction in the pediatric world? So um, uh, what I would say is that, you know, we're fairly risk averse in the world of pediatric transplantation. But um, I think the experience uh, that has come from the adult side, and if we couple that with, uh, as Ricardo said, the, the urgent uh, uh, candidate who's in the ICU for whom there may not be an alternative donor available, I think that we would do it. I, I believe that our transplanters, like our liver uh, transplant group, would use, uh, they would like it to be ideally um, uh, avoided. But if not, um, they would consider using it. And I think they would use a living donor um, if they were being pushed. So there's urgency to do the transplant, but they have a living donor. They would want to be out something like two weeks since the time of infection before they would consider using it. So avoid it if we can. But like uh, the adult side, we have patients who may not get another offer. And uh, I think the experience to date is very encouraging and we would consider using Thanks. Um, in the last two or three minutes, I'm just going to ask, I think, Paolo, you, you specified that you use informed consent specific to this use. And is that the U.S. experience, Ricardo? 
Do you I think, think people are doing consent forms and should they be? I think I find some parallels uh, between the update in the 2020 PHS guidelines on this topic and in the latest update, the need for a separate uh, uh, informed consent for donors with acute risk factors for HIV, Hep B, and Hep C was removed. And the rationale for that was the low residual risk of disease transmission after the donors were tested uh, for NAT, uh, with NAT. In a similar way, I think collectively, we need to be humble and know that there's still a lot of unknowns from these donors, but the risk of disease transmission appears low. And I, I personally don't think that a separate informed consent is required. What's required is a rich discussion with the recipient. What are the factors that at least I conceptualize that the discussion should have? Number one is the tangible mortality on the wait list that each uh, candidate has. Number two is what we know about the biology of COVID-19. Number three is all the experience that we have at this point with a SARS-CoV positive donors. And we also need to tell our candidates all of the unknowns. And, and I think that's, that's the, the points that we should use at the time of the discussion. Yet, I, I don't think a, a separate informed consent is necessary. But if teams feel like that's in their best interest of their candidates and that's what they want to do, I think uh, that that is a viable option too. Great, thanks. Last question for both of you. Are you routinely giving any SARS-CoV-2 specific therapies after using these organs, or are you simply monitoring the patients? Uh, we, have, we have given uh, monoclonal antibodies to recipients who are completely naive, so not vaccinated and not with a history of uh, past uh, uh, COVID-19, so they were naive, so we gave monoclonal antibodies, and uh, uh, and also to the recipients who were being found at the time of the call for transplantation to be uh, positive uh, when they've been called before going to transplant. That's the only situation. Otherwise, we don't give any antiviral or monoclonal antibodies to the recipients, and uh, and so far we didn't have any any transmission. And all the the, the biopsy, the, the search for RNA or SARS-CoV-2 on on the liver tissue was negative in 100% of, of so. Apparently, the risk related to the use of, of, of levers. Now we, we, we have just started a month ago using kidneys. So I don't have the data yet, but we don't find the virus. So the, 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 the RNA in the graph. So we are not giving any specific antiviral uh, prophylaxis with monoclonal or, or, or antivirals. And Ricardo, are you recommending any post? The transplant prophylaxis or just watching your patients? I think uh, we are not using any prophylaxis, and I'm going to give my rationale. I think the be, during the Omicron wave, we probably used the same amount of SARS-CoV-2 positive donors than during the whole prior pandemic. And as you can imagine, the number of these donors correlate with how much COVID they're circulating in the community. And given the low risk of disease transmission, 
I much rather save that dose of monoclonal antibody for a post-transplant recipient at high risk for disease progression than use it for a transplant recipient from a SARS-CoV-2 positive donor. So we haven't used any antivirals, any monoclonals. We have done, I think at this point, more than 33 transplants from these donors with good short-term outcomes. And like I said, we need to be humble. We don't know what's going to be the long-term outcomes, but so far it appears that, uh, and we've even used them for unvaccinated recipients. Thank you. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation and it's so helpful to hear your experience. I'm going to turn this back over to Carol, and I just want to thank you all for your participation. It's been great hearing your, your experiences. Great. Thank you all so much uh, for talking to our listeners about this very important and timely topic, and I wish everybody um, a happy day, and thank you. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter.